Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. You have led us through different circumstances this past week. You have been leading us down this road that is our lives, our entire lives, to, give, to bring us to this point, to bring us all into your house, where, as was mentioned before, we don't need to fear bombs exploding overhead, driving us underground. We don't need to worry about the authorities kicking down the doors and hauling us all off. Lord, I pray that we would never, ever, ever take the privilege and the blessing that we have in this country to gather together to worship you as a, as a corporate body, as one family, all in one place, that we would ever take that for granted. Because so many of our brothers and sisters around the world just don't have that. And they don't have that support and they don't have that power of being amongst one another in the name of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would be with them as well. I pray that you would bless this time that we have together this morning, that you would receive all the glory from it. In Jesus' name, amen. When it comes to life-threatening medical conditions, medical advancement has achieved some pretty strange but successful surgeries to either prolong the life of someone or bring restoration to a medical condition. I just want to go through a few of these here. You've probably heard of this first one, known as a rotationplasty. Uh, this procedure is usually done on children who have been diagnosed with a malignant and inoperable tumor at or just at the knee. In traditional amputations, that child would not have the chance for an active lifestyle that could include running or dancing uh, because they wouldn't have uh, capability of, of the one knee working. But with a rotationplasty, the child's ankle bone on the affected leg is removed turn 180 degrees and is the foundation for a rebuilt knee uh, under which a prosthetic leg can be now attached. And that child now has the opportunity uh, to, as you can see here, he's, he's uh, playing ball or something like that, be able to bend that knee, be able to run, jump, dance, do all kinds of things that, that other, uh, other kids who don't have this type of tumor uh, can do. The second surgery is known as a heterotopic heart transplant. You might say, well, that looks like that person has two hearts. Exactly. When a person has half of a bad heart that does not function and the risk is extremely high that their body would reject a traditional heart transplant, another healthy heart is piggybacked next to the damaged heart and surgically attached so that blood flows from the new heart into the original heart and through the rest of the cardio system and kind of tricks the body into not rejecting uh, this new heart. This last one is perhaps the strangest but successful medical procedure I've seen. And it's the one with the longest and most unpronounceable name, but I'm going to try anyway. Osteoodontokeratoprosthesis. Somebody's eye, right? Okay. 
It's just shortened to OOKP, so that's what I, I'm going to use from, <laughs> from this point forward with this. OOKP is a surgery for those who have blindness due to irreversible damage to the cornea or the outer layer of the eye. And how this works is this. This is what's so strange about this. A patient's canine tooth, you know, the pointy one, is removed from their mouth. A hole is drilled into the tooth and a plastic lens is inserted into that tooth. This tooth lens structure is then implanted in the patient's cheek for months where new blood vessels form over this plastic lens. The tooth and lens are then removed from the person's cheek and the lens is surgically implanted in the patient's eye. It's been reported that this procedure has greatly improved the patient's eyesight and they can now see again. Some medical advancement has given many people the opportunity to be given prolonged life or bring help to a medical condition, but as successful as these procedures are, none of them come anywhere close to a person uttering a few words and bringing full restoration of life to a child whose illness had them teetering on the edge of death. Yet that restoration to life is exactly what we'll be talking about today and what that means for us today. We close the chapter on Jesus' experiences in the region of Samaria, this yellow part, last week. And, then, and since then, he's moved on in a return to his home region of Galilee up here. This other purple part. we got Judea, Samaria, and Galilee up here. So that's what brings us to this morning's passage here. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be in verses 43 through 45. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, you can also turn there or look it up on your Bible app on your smartphone. Uh, John chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 43 through 45. And we read this. After the two days, remember he spent two days in Samaria, we talked about that last week, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they themselves also went to the feast. So what's going on here? After the two days that Jesus spent in Samaria and witnessing the little revival that happened in the village of Sychar in Samaria, as one biblical scholar pointed out, there's all of a sudden a contrast given between locations. Samaria, ironically, was the location where many of its inhabitants had put their faith and trust in Jesus as the Messiah. As verse 44 says, this is in direct contrast with Judea and Galilee, made up of primarily Jewish people, but who refused to put their faith and trust in Jesus. According to one biblical scholar, the word used in verse 45 for that the Galileans received him, that did not mean that they had the same level of faith in him as the Samaritans did. In fact, a different word is used here in verse 45 than elsewhere where the word is directly connected to faith. Here, the word received is that they liked him as a miraculous healer, but there wasn't much belief in him beyond that. Here's the irony. 
The irony is that the Samaritans, who were hated and discriminated against by the Jewish populations of Judea and Galilee, are really the first people group as a whole who generally embraced and accepted Jesus as all that he said he was, the Messiah, and as we saw last week in verse 42, the Savior of the world. The irony is that the Samaritans, whose scriptures ended with the book of Deuteronomy, got it. They're the ones who got it. They got who Jesus is and put their saving faith in all of who he is. The Jewish populations of Judea and Galilee, they had the whole rest of the Old Testament, and yet they're the ones who are refusing to put their faith in him for all that he says he is. That contrast in faith is what directly flows into the experience that takes place in Galilee that we're talking about this morning. When John records in verse 45 that the Galileans liked him and he was the talk of the town, it was because a lot of, if not most, of the Galilean population had traveled to Jerusalem for Passover. And if you remember from John 2, which we covered a while ago, that was the same time that Jesus cleansed the temple of, of the price-gouging currency exchangers the first time. Everyone who was in Jerusalem that day heard about that event, for worship was shut down the rest of the day as all the sacrificial animals were then roaming around the streets of Jerusalem, and it made the front page of the Jerusalem Herald. When Passover ended, those same Galileans returned home and welcomed this curious fringe rabbi from Galilee, albeit not in faith, when he returned to the area. He was fascinating. That's why they welcomed him back to the area. Again, this contrast in faith is what sets up for what happens next in Galilee, verse 46. Therefore, he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. We talked about that a while ago, too. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. So let's set up for what happens here. Let's take a look at this map again. It's about a three-day walk from Sychar at the, uh, towards the south of Samaria, all the way up into Galilee here through the lower portion of Galilee to the town of Cana. You see Cana here. Again, this is my shameless plug that if you can't see this because you're too far back, maybe next week you can move up a little bit and you'll be able to see this. All right, so here's Cana up here in the southern portion of Galilee. Now you can see here, before we get to Cana, even more south than that is this town of Nazareth. We've heard of that town before. That's Jesus' hometown. When did Jesus go to the synagogue in Nazareth, read the scroll of Isaiah, apply the prophecy to himself, and subsequently almost get thrown off of a cliff by his neighbors. Probably after this event in this morning's passage. Even though Nazareth comes first in Galilee, before you get to Cana, he probably returns to Nazareth after what happens uh, in this morning's passage. Jesus starts developing quite the reputation for himself in Galilee, not only after the miracle at the wedding in Cana before this, but then the audacity of angering the Pharisees by driving the money changers out of the temple at Passover, and then what happens in this morning's passage. 
That easily goes hand in hand with Luke chapter 4, just before the synagogue experience in Nazareth, when we read, Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. This morning's passage is most likely nestled with what Luke 4, 14 through 15 describe before the next Sabbath day when Jesus returns to Nazareth. Now, why did I go through all of that? Because at the end of this morning's passage, John makes it clear that what we'll take a look at today was only the second sign or miracle that was performed in Galilee. The first one, of course, was him turning water into wine at the wedding in John chapter 2. This wasn't the second miracle that Jesus performed in all of his ministry up to this point. For we read in John 3 that Jesus was performing signs during Passover in Jerusalem before this. But what we're talking about today is the second one in Galilee since Jesus had transitioned his ministry from Judea to Galilee. And at the end of the event of the synagogue, uh, at the synagogue in Nazareth, we, if you go back to Luke 4, you'll see this. Jesus goes to Capernaum in Galilee where he exercises a demon from a man at the synagogue in Capernaum and then goes and heals Peter's mother-in-law immediately upon leaving that synagogue. Now, I went through all of that to kind of give an order to how things are transpiring in Jesus' ministry so far while showing that all of the Gospels, in fact, do harmonize with each other, no matter how loudly critics of the Bible, uh, the Bible's credibility, shout the opposite at us. So Jesus crossed over the border of Samaria into Galilee, either stopped in Nazareth to say hi to his family and possibly spend the night, or bypassed it altogether and headed into Cana. While he's in Cana, he's met by a royal official who was from Capernaum, all the way over here on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Like we read in Luke 4, Jesus' reputation had already preceded him. So as soon as this official, who lived 20 miles away from Cana in Capernaum, and close to a full day's worth of travel, heard that Jesus was there in Cana, he hightailed it over there. Here's another bit of a history lesson, which is in direct connection to this royal official. Who was this guy? Don't fall asleep on me yet. Stay with me. Everybody with me so far? Okay, stay with me. I might clap my hands at the end of this to wake you back up. Herod the Great ruled over this entire area uh, leading up to and around Jesus' birth. Uh, all the way up through Jesus' birth, all the way up to Herod's death in either 4 or 5 BC. Following his death, his kingdom was divided up into three regions, each ruled over by one of his inheritors. Herod Archelaus ruled the regions of Judea and Samaria. This was his territory, Herod Archelaus. He ruled those regions of Judea and Samaria until he was deposed by Caesar Augustus, also of Christmas fame, in 6 AD, after which a Roman governor who directly answered to Rome was set up over that area. 
So that's why by the time we get to around 30 AD, when a certain Jesus of Nazareth is brought to trial, his earthly fate is determined by the Roman governor over Jerusalem and Judea, a guy named Pontius Pilate. On the other hand, Galilee was ruled by a different ruler. This is a different region ruled by a different ruler. That was ruled by Herod Antipas. And across the river, the third tetrarch, Philip, ruled this area on the other side of the Jordan River, in which uh, the uh, famous cities Bethsaida and Caesarea Philippi, other famous towns in the New Testament, are located. All right. Everybody's still awake, right? Okay. Good. What's my point? This official in our passage this morning, as noted by biblical scholarship, is most likely an official in Herod Antipas's government over Galilee. That's why I went through all that. He was either Jewish or Gentile in ethnicity, but in either case, he answered to and is primarily loyal to the puppet king over Galilee, Herod Antipas, who answered to Rome. He didn't really care all that much about anything having to do with any movements, messianic or not, within Judaism. This official only cared about the accomplishments, purposes, and goals of Rome's puppet government in the area of Galilee. But here was this situation this man now found himself in, this official, where as we find out from the next verse, his son is suffering from an illness that is going to cause him to die. The writing is on the wall. That is what is inevitable. It's going to happen. And since this official is so high up in the local government, with all the medical possibilities in existence at that point at his disposal, the fact that he's going to see this fringe rabbi from Nazareth who is rumored to perform miracles means this. Nothing this official has tried to heal his son has worked. Nothing. No combination of any medicine, no expertise by any physician, possibly across the entire Roman Empire at this point, has worked. Nothing has worked. His son still remains at death's door with no hope. That's the conclusion we find in verse 47. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. We can sense the desperation this, in the conversation this official has with Jesus. He can plainly see that his son is going to die. He's beside himself, as any good father would be at the possibility of their child's death. He's been through this, working with his son for months, and nothing has worked. And he's desperate at this point. Jesus is literally his only hope at this point. Jesus' response is a curious one. Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. One might read this and say, wow, uh, Jesus is kind of being a bit of a jerk here, isn't he? He can plainly see the desperation on this father's face. And all this desperate man wants is for his son to be healed. And Jesus goes on and says this. But that's also what Jesus is getting at here. 
rather than being a callous jerk, Jesus is exposing the lack of faith that this man, who represented the Jewish Galilean population under Herod Antipas, really had. Jesus is speaking to this man specifically, but at the same time, he's also speaking to the rest of the Jewish Galilean crowd that's most likely surrounding them at this point. This is why there is that contrast in faith given in verse 44, contrasting with the faith the Samaritans had with the lack of faith Jesus' own people had in him as everything he said he was, both the Messiah and even the Savior of the world. Since we already know from John 2, 24 through 25, that Jesus as God knew what was going on in the hearts of everyone he interacted with, Jesus most likely saw that lack of faith initially in this man's heart. This man was only interested in someone giving him some kind of medical hope for his son. He wasn't necessarily ready to accept Jesus as everything he had been saying he was. Do you see the big difference there? And so Jesus called him and all the rest of those listening, he called them out. That they were only interested in what Jesus could do for them and not in who he was, much less trust their eternal fate to him. This is a similar mindset to a lot of people today. A lot of people will say something like, unless God does this thing I need or I want, I won't believe in him. Does that sound familiar? Unless God does this thing for me, I'm not going to believe in him. Or, because God didn't do this thing I needed, I won't believe in him. I prayed and prayed and prayed that this person would be healed and God didn't heal them and rather they died, so I'm not going to believe in him. It's a very well-known mindset. Both mindsets are the same. It's a faith that's only based on what God can do for them. We've come across that time and time again, and maybe you've thought that from time to time. But what that mindset really is at its core is selfish. It's self-centered. And any faith based on that is not really a faith at all. It's a cold, hard truth. Why? Because the very next hardship that comes along causes them to question God and a lot of the time give up their faith in God. But a faith that starts with God as God and a gratitude that he even provided a way, the way, for us to be reconciled to him through a repentance of sin and an acceptance that Jesus paid the price for our sin as a substitute on our behalf so that, yes, we could receive eternal life, but also live the rest of our lives to serve him. That is true faith. If we live our lives serving God and not viewing and treating him the other way around, then we understand the place of trials in our lives. That they are not a cause for us to disband our faith, but trials rather are an instrument to stretch and grow our faith. 
This official, as desperate as he is, however, will not be dissuaded from continuing to beg Jesus to go back to Capernaum with him to heal his son. Verse 49, the royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus challenged the official's motive that foundational faith needed to precede any proof of miracles, but the official continued to implore Jesus. And you know what? I get it. I get it. And any one of us sitting here watching this later online gets it. If I were in the official's shoes, I'd be the exact same way. If my kid was sick to the point of death, I also would stop at nothing, even if it took taking a little challenge from the one who was my only hope. And I imagine anyone else here would be the same, do the exact same thing. We see that human, very human experience and context here. That this is not just some kind of Bible story that's just relegated to these words on, the, uh, on this page. This was real life. This was a real danger. This was a real heartbreak. This isn't just a Bible story. This was someone's real life, what they were going through. I love Jesus' response here. Some of us may have read over this or heard this story before and may have never grasped what Jesus is really getting at here. Let's read what Jesus' response is. The first part of verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. Remember what the underlying problem here is. The lack of faith in Jesus as Messiah and Savior from the Jewish Galilean population in general and the lack of faith in him as Messiah and Savior from this man specifically. See, Jesus could have just said, all right, you wore me down, let's go back to Capernaum so I can heal your son. That was certainly the official's expectation of all that could happen. The best of what he could hope for was that Jesus said, all right, I'll go back with you to Capernaum and heal your son. That's the best that he could hope for. That's all he expected in his mind. For in his mind, Jesus, like any of the other doctors or religious figures he had had in his home to heal his son, were physically present in order to try to do that. And if we think of things in a human way, that's the only possibility that makes sense to us too. You have to go see a doctor or go to the hospital in extreme medical cases anyway in order to receive treatment. Now obviously in this day of remote appointments and Zoom doctors diagnoses, you don't need to physically go to a doctor, but you still have to have some sort of interaction uh, with one to at least receive a prescription for something. And even then, a medical professional or you still have to physically do or take something else in order to have any sort of bettering of a condition. You have to Doctor has to be physically telling you something, and you have to do something about it. But what does Jesus do? Something completely different. What does Jesus' response actually mean? 
As pointed out by one biblical scholar, when Jesus says, go, your son lives, what he's doing is he is putting the official in a situation where faith in Jesus would be absolutely required on the official's part. You see that? It would be absolutely required on the official's part, and that's the spot Jesus is putting him in. Jesus didn't even blink in the direction of Capernaum, let alone take one step towards it. All that he did was utter four words. That was it. This forced the official to believe and have faith in that what Jesus said would come true. What Jesus had done was completely different from what any doctor, expert, or religious teacher had done or tried. And it's completely different from what any human can do, no matter how intelligent or skilled a medical expert is. Jesus wasn't anywhere near the patient. He wasn't anywhere near them. He just said a few words. The official had to believe that those simple few words were all it would take for his son to be healed. Not only healed, but live. Big difference there. Healed and live. And that was what Jesus said, and that was Jesus' whole point in this whole exchange. See, Elijah did something similar in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings 17, the prophet Elijah healed the son of a widow who had gotten so sick that he had even died. He had actually died. Elijah stretched out his body across the body of the boy three times and prayed to God to heal the boy. Finally, God brought that child back to life, and Elijah brought the boy downstairs and told your mother, his mother, your son lives. Very similar words to what Jesus said right here. But again, what is the biggest difference? Jesus wasn't anywhere near physically, anywhere near the official son. And in this way, he showed his people that he was greater in power than even the great Old Testament prophets. And not only that, who was the one who is credited for healing that boy in the story about Elijah? God, right? So what else was Jesus declaring when he said, go, your son lives, directly quoting the prophet Elijah? I am the same God who healed that boy. In order for this to have any efficacy, let alone actually flat out heal this boy and cause him to live, what, would this, what was this official forced to make a decision about having faith about Jesus? Again, who is the only one who could possibly pull off such a feat? God himself. God Almighty himself. And that's what Jesus is forcing this official to make a decision about. Is this fringe rabbi from Nazareth merely a religious teacher who could work signs and wonders, or is he God? What was most important to Jesus was for this official to see this as what he truly needed to put his faith in. Not the signs, not the miracles, but in Jesus himself as God. 
we see that this official does actually end up putting his faith in Jesus as God. Ver the second part of verse 50. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. In order for that man to believe the words that Jesus spoke, he needed to believe in him as the only one who could do anything about those words. The official doesn't say or do anything else towards Jesus. All that's written for us is that he believes and walks away. He doesn't say, are you kidding? He doesn't say, are you sure that's all you need to do? I've had all these other people in my house doing all these kinds of things over my son and nothing has worked. You say four words and, and that's all you need to do for Jesus? Yes, absolutely. The man just simply believes and turns around and starts heading home. Even though Capernaum was about 20 miles away, as noted by one biblical scholar, that was still close to a full day's worth of travel. His servants, who witnessed what happened back in Capernaum, all of a sudden the kid is up out of bed and he's walking around and he's throwing the ball around and maybe taking uh, shots at them and, and making fun of them a little bit. All of a sudden, the kid's up and doing all these different things a normal kid does. And they think to themselves, what on earth just happened? We know our master just went to Cana. We need to go and tell him what exactly just happened. So they start running towards where they know their master was in Cana and meet him about halfway. Verse 51, as he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. Imagine the unspeakable joy and overwhelming excitement that coursed through this man at this point. He had tried everything under the sun, every kind of possibility, every kind of treatment, every kind of doctor, every kind of religious leader, and nothing, nothing worked. Yet this man said four words and his son was all of a sudden healed and jumping around the house. If that wasn't a confirmation of faith, there is literally nothing else that could be. Just to be sure that this was from Jesus and not just some freak other treatment that actually eventually worked or something, the official wants to confirm that it was from Jesus. Rather than a questioning of faith, this rather seems like an expectation of faith. He already knows the answer. He just wants to hear his servants say it. The official already knows what the answer is, but he still wants to know. Just to be absolutely clear about everything else. So in verse 52 through 53, so he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This time reference was most likely 1 p.m. of the previous day. Since it was a full day of travel between Capernaum and Cana, it took some time for the servants going towards Cana and the official going towards Capernaum, but at some point they meet up on the road, and the time reference of exactly when Jesus said those four words was enough to blow the official's mind. Right then and there, the official fully placed his faith and trust in Jesus as all he was claiming to me.
to be. It's one of the most exciting stories of faith and revival in the Bible, isn't it? As we see throughout the New Testament, as is referenced by one biblical scholar, it was common for entire households to come to the same faith together. This says the entire household, who else put his faith in Jesus that same time? The little boy who was healed. Lastly, as we talked about already, the miracle of water into wine at the wedding in that same town just a short while before this, in combination with this second miracle in Cana of Galilee, is the beginning of all the other healings and miracles we see in this region. Last verse of chapter 4. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Oftentimes, there are hardships and heartbreaking experiences in our lives. We, talk, we referenced those in our service already. That there are one of two things God wants us to see in the midst of us going through them. The first revelation, similar to what happened in this morning's passage, is this. There are going to be times in our lives where God sees as what is most important in that situation is for your faith to grow and to hold off on bringing what we wish to happen to pass yet. There are going to be times in our lives where God sees as what is most important in that situation is for your faith to grow and to hold off on bringing what we wish to happen to pass yet. The official just want, initially, the official just wanted Jesus to do what he thought was best at that moment. But Jesus knew what was better, what was more foundational and overall best for this man and his entire family. And that was for him to be stretched and driven to actual faith in him. If Jesus had just gone along with what the man wanted, this man may have spent the whole rest of his life never actually putting his faith in Jesus as the Messiah and Savior of the world. And sometimes God uses circumstances we don't understand and we wish were different to ultimately bring us to a better place before him, to be given a stronger faith and to become a stronger believer in Jesus. If God simply granted us all of our requests immediately for no reason other than just granting them, we would have no reason to grow. And we would have no reason to be driven to know him in deeper and deeper ways. And we would have no force to become a stronger follower of Jesus. So unlike who we referenced a little while ago, someone whose faith is only based on what God can do for them and will question his very existence when times get tough, God is more focused on growing actual and ever-deepening faith in us. When times get tough, we must see them as opportunities to trust him more and more. In referencing spiritual growth in the church, Paul tells the Ephesians, this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. 
And how is that going to happen? James tells us it's through trials. And like our passage this morning, most of the time, all we have is to cling to the words of Jesus in faith. Jesus said four words physically to the official in this morning's passage. What do we have? We have an entire book full of Jesus' words and promises that we can rest in in faith. So here's my question. Are we? Are we resting in this entire book of Jesus' words and promises? Are we clinging to the promises of God in His Word to be fulfilled in His perfect timing? Or like the official before meeting Jesus, are we trying everything else under the sun to try to fix whatever problems are in our lives? Trying to do everything we can do. Do we only view our hardships through human eyes, trying to fix them with human solutions? Or are we seeking God to provide solutions, and in the meantime, trusting in the promises found in his word. You might say, I feel like you're talking at me right now. But this is, this is why I'm saying this. We can avoid a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of heartache, a lot of confusion, a lot of frustration if we simply trust in the words and promises of God's word. We can answer all of life's questions if we simply look for answers in God's word. We can understand what's going on in our lives, and we can even understand what's going on in the world around us and how to respond in biblical ways if we simply run every situation and confusion through the filter of the word of God. And all of a sudden, things appear clear. God's word is how we know how to have salvation and reconciliation with God through Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection. God's word is how we know how to have peace, no matter how, what confusing, frustrating, painful, angering, or dark circumstances we're in. God's word is how we know how to have joy, even in the midst of anxiety and fear. God's word is how we know that God will provide, protect, teach, convict, and bless us in his timing. And at the end of all of it, God's word is how we know that when we die, we will immediately wake up in the very presence of Jesus. Trust in Jesus and in his words for your eternity and rest in his promises in the meantime, let's pray. Heavenly Father, there, are word, there, there is power in Jesus' words. There is power in the word of God. I pray that we would be driven to it every day to find that power, to be renewed in the strength of what we find in your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to lead us and guide us and convict us and stretch us and grow us and open our spiritual eyes to see what you want us to see in every situation we go through. I pray that we would not be disheartened or confused by difficult circumstances, 
but we would put our trust in you and we would see them as opportunities for you stretching and growing our faith and driving us to deeper and deeper ways of knowing you. We thank you that you are a living God, that you want to have a growing and dynamic relationship with us and that you're using these trials in our lives to do just that. I pray that we would find our rest in those promises in your word. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.